Welcome to part two of our interview with uh, Dr. Mark Knapp of Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. This is a continuation from episode 15, the first part of this one-hour interview. So with that, we'll give it back to Dr. Hoppe and Dr. Knapp. I think this provides a a good transition into all of the other stuff and how you actually managed this whole disaster response. And it's all encompassing, whether it's staffing, whether it's facilities and beds, procurement of supplies, whether it be PPE, pharmaceuticals, or a whole host of other things. What I'd like to do is focus in a little bit on the direct provision of patient care, um, but if you could help us understand, how did you even logistically get this done? What, what kind of command structure did you have to put in place? Because you're trying to coordinate this huge response over a very large health system. How did you make sure that, that the needs of the whole system were being met? It's, it's an excellent question. And I can tell you how we did it. Um, and there will be lessons that come out of that for other other organizations, but every organization uh, manages crises in, in a slightly different way. Some of the principles are universal, but um, when it comes down to when it comes down to it, it really uh, every individual member of the workforce uh, contributes to it, and therefore contributes their own decision making, etc. We. Uh, we have a very strong emergency management program, uh, and I'm really grateful to our VP for emergency management uh, who came to us from um, Health and Human Services, and he'd, uh, been, he's been all over the world uh, helping with deployments uh, over his career. And so he's quite expert at helping us get organized. Um, roughly, I'd say mid-year in 2019, we recognized that our structure for emergency management at the system level, and again, we're an eight hospital system. Each hospital has its own incident management team and activates its incident management team um, fairly often to manage various disruptions to, to hospital operations. And we also have a significant ambulatory uh, emergency management structure. However, the, we, we still we struggled with how does the health system at the corporate level support that? And since we don't have very many um, massive activations that really require the system to activate, um, the system doesn't get to practice much. But we decided last uh, mid-year last year to rethink how the system worked uh, in supporting the, the sites. And we moved from an incident management structure to an, to an emergency operations um, command structure. And what that did is rather than setting up the standard seats that would fill an incident management team of the hospital operations team and logistics and communications and safety officer, et cetera, instead we identified 22 um, emer uh, emergency support functions or essential support functions, sorry. And we identified the leaders of those essential support functions. And that actually is generally what they do in their day job. Um, the person who leads support services for the ESF for the emergency operations center actually leads support services um, in her day job. 
Uh, the person who leads staffing as an emergency, uh, as an essential support function is the head of human resources. So it was a natural, it was a more natural transition for them. Um, and these ESFs would then roll up underneath uh, an incident commander who would then uh, figure out how to manage, the, how to manage. So that was the model we were using. Um, in early March, we recognized that we needed to start activating our emergency operations center to get ready for uh, what was coming our way. Um, the first patient in New York City that uh, was diagnosed with COVID was actually diagnosed in the Mount Sinai Hospital Emergency Department. She was an outpatient, had been seen in the emergency department on a Friday, uh, the 27th or 28th, whatever it was, of, of February, and was diagnosed positive on March 1st. The first patient that we admitted with COVID was on March 7th. Um, and so in that six-day period, we, was, we were anticipating what was going to happen in New York City, and we recognized that we needed to start getting, uh, start getting around a table to start planning. And we weren't thinking about protecting ourselves at the time. We weren't thinking about the fact that this would be a huge community exposure, community spread kind of disease. So we, we activated our emergency operations center. Um, we got 20 or so people in a room around a table, and we started to think through how we would organize ourselves. Um, and we went through a brainstorming process of what we thought were the most, uh, were the key areas we had to focus on. And out of that, we developed 10 work groups. And those work groups were then responsible for managing our, um, our processes. Um, and the incident commander would then basically work through that process, overseeing the work groups and the, and the duties of the work groups. And as we, uh, as we went through those, those uh, responsibilities, we started to make progress. Uh, communicating that out to the system and to the leadership across the system so that they knew that this was happening, that was our next challenge. Um, we realized we were doing this work and we knew we were uh, making headway internally, but did anybody else know this? So we started setting up system-wide calls with hospital leadership from around the health system. Uh, two calls a day initially, and then we uh, cut it down to one call a day. With the, with the sites reporting out on their status and then the system reporting back to them on the progress that they, that they were making on the various tasks that needed to be done. And that's how we iterated to know what, need, what, what, um, what we needed to do. We created what's called the Unified Command Group that was made up of myself, I'm the deputy CMO, um, the, the chief medical officer of the health system, the chief clinical officer of the health system and the chief operating officer of the health system and our VP for emergency management. So we were the UCG and we basically served a role, the role of the incident commander. Um, with five of us doing it, it was, that was the challenge, I think, but it still worked, um, it still worked well and uh, we were able to manage through this. You were able to manage manage through it. How did you actually make decisions quickly? Because to a certain extent, you did not have the luxury of time. You know, you did not determine the time frame. The virus determined the time frame. So, so how were you able to 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 make decisions um, quickly and get them implemented quickly? So the nice thing about the emergency management um, incident command structure is that you can make decisions very quickly. It's designed to get all the critical decision makers 
uh, together in a room. It's designed to get uh, information feeds to them. It includes concerns about communications, logistics, supplies, etc. And so, normally, I think it would have been be it would have worked seamlessly. The challenge was when after about 10 days of doing this, one of the uh, staff, one of the staff members in one of the command center spaces um, tested positive for COVID. She was feeling unwell. Um, she had a high fever and she was tested and she was positive. And immediately we had to disperse our command center. Um, we had already um, segmented ourselves out into pods so that no more than a handful of people were together in the same space. But we were still functioning in one virtual in one area of one of our buildings, spread out amongst six rooms, um, with video monitoring, et cetera, because we we were cognizant of the infection risk, but we really weren't taking it as seriously as we should have. And that's probably the way um, human nature is. Um, once that one person came down with it, we basically moved entirely to working remotely. Um, or working from either from home, from our office where nobody else was was there. We started basically sending our entire workforce home. It's around the same time that the governor gave out his directive that people should be staying home. And um, that's when things became difficult as far as communications go. Uh, if it weren't for that, I think it would have been pretty pretty smooth. It took a little while to get into a cadence um, and to get comfortable using Zoom. Uh, we used Zoom extensively. We, we realized that Zoom is now the way that all work is going to get done. Um, so that was um, how we communicated and made decisions within the incident command. The bigger problem was communicating with the, with the entire workforce. Um, and how we did that was also iterative. We needed to um, create channels of information that would be reliable. Um, that would be trusted, um, that would answer the most salient points, um, would be a constant source of resource of, of information, um, was not overwhelming so that people, so it didn't just become noise. Um, and so um, roughly about three weeks into this, we changed our communication strategy um, and became extremely strict about what we were sending out and really parsimonious about any messaging. Um, we sent out two major notices a day, one to the general staff um, that was typically a page, maybe a page and a half long of uh, just the updates on what was happening, uh, critical information, answering any critical questions that might come up. Um, and then we also sent out a notice in the evening of any major updates to leadership around the system. Uh, and that was, um, that was, I think, it soon became clear that when people needed to know what was happening, they looked for those two messages. On our website, we created um, a page that initially started out as an intranet page. And then we realized that staff who were working off-site have a hard time getting into the intranet uh, pages. It's just difficult to navigate through the firewall. It's just so much easier just to go to the outside external facing web pages. And so we made an exec, you know, an executive decision to just put everything externally facing, even if it contains sensitive information. Um, and that became a living document that 
uh, got, received a lot of attention in terms of uh, what was provided there. And I'm, I'm happy to you know, give out the URL for anybody who wants to see how we set it up. It includes information on you know, policies regarding travel, regarding visit, visitors. It includes information about wellness uh, resources. It includes uh, all the HR questions you might have, um, personal wellness, um, information about COVID itself. Basically, it's a one, one place for, for any staff member to go to get any information they needed. Um, and it iterated to, to continue to provide that information. So that was one of your major communication vehicles. But at the same point, was that the vehicle that, say, the New York press or other areas? How did you communicate outside your organization, either through that mechanism or through other mechanisms? Because I have to imagine they were at your doorstep. <laughs> well, anybody who follows uh, the New York um, media We'll know that we had our challenges in the early days. Actually, many of the hospitals in New York City had challenges in the early days related to its management of COVID and the staff and PPE shortages and things like that. Um, we have an active media group that um, both follows what's going on in the media and also is in constant contact with the media uh, for opportunities to be able to make sure the story is told correctly. Um, that group was extremely busy. Um, there were collegial requests from those groups to interview us, to speak to us about what we were doing. Our chairman of emergency medicine was featured on numerous broad television broadcasts about the use of telehealth in the emergency department, because I think um, we'd innovated that. Um, so I, I think that there's no, there's no shortage of, um, of interaction between the media and any of the hospitals in New York City. Um, and, you know, I think as time went on and I think as this unfolded, the media became relatively respectful of what we were trying to do. Um, as, you know, most of the stories I would say that, are come, that came out in the last month or so, two months, have been very positive um, in terms of their tone. Um, there's still obviously the role for uh, being a watchdog, and uh, we still invite that because it does keep us honest. But um, there's there's no there, there's sorry there's plenty of opportunity to get our voice into the media and the media to ask us questions and, and get the information it needs. Okay, I'd like to do a little bit of a segue here because earlier you had um, discussed the use of Zoom for for your incident command team, et cetera, and the use of technology. And we've kind of touched on it a little bit on the use of telehealth, but you'd mentioned telehealth in the ED, telehealth in the ICU, how some of your ambulatory areas were using telehealth to free up other members of their team. Can you kind of give us a kind of a broad overview of how telehealth was even used in your organization. Um, so the first, um, we already had a telehealth platform set up called Mount Sinai Now that really honestly didn't get a lot of traffic. Um, it's staffed 24 hours a day um, and it's basically anybody can contact it and uh, ask general questions and staff with a physician or an advanced practice provider. Um, I would say within 48 hours of activating, it started getting really busy. We started 
proactively directing people to it because there were lots of questions coming in from the public. Um, and we were getting questions from our staff. And so we needed to send up, so we set up a COVID questions uh, you know, website for people to submit questions to, to have them answered. But the telehealth function we realized was very easy to replicate. We were already in the process of building telehealth for some of our hospitals um, in, air, in specialties that they do not, um, that they don't provide. For example, two of our community hospitals don't have obstetrics. Um, uh, mental health is uh, not well represented in those hospitals as well. And so they, they didn't have sufficient resources. So we were already had online uh, telehealth capability for that. What we, did in, what we did with it, though, is we spread it to all of our ambulatory practices. Um, in fact, I had a telehealth visit in the middle of all this. I had a, a regular doctor's visit scheduled for a follow-up, and we did it by telehealth, and it worked incredibly well. Um, first off, there was no wait. It was right on time, and uh, there was no difficulty logging in. It was really very efficient. The novel use of telehealth in our ED was um, giving iPads to patients in isolation rooms so that they could communicate with the providers so the providers didn't have to go in and out of the room every time uh, to see them and to take a history, et cetera, so that we could decrease the exposure. Um, and by decreasing the exposure to the providers, you're also decreasing the exposure to other patients and the use of PPE, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in order to, to make our ambulatory practices more efficient, um, we could do telehealth visits from uh, from wherever wherever a practitioner is. They didn't have to come into the office itself. Uh, that made them more efficient. Um, they could answer uh, telehealth questions anytime, day or night. It it really has turned out to be a, an incredible accelerator of this technology in the provision of healthcare. Very good. You had also mentioned earlier in the broadcast where where you ended up having some of these agency or volunteer people come in and be overwhelmed by the circumstances and leave after a day. Well, your own employees aren't going to leave. They're, they're, they're your employees. And yet they're facing this stress, whether it's the number of hours, the 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 whole mental stress of, of am I going to get exposed? Am I exposed? Yes. Am I going to get the disease? Am I going to take it back to my family? Um, all of the other mental health issues that come. How did you deal with the whole issue of, of staff wellness, whether, whether it was mental health, whether it was the temporary loss of 30% of, of your respiratory therapy staff that you had mentioned earlier? And, oh, my God, you know, potentially permanent loss of staff. How, how did your health system deal with that? Because with the vastness of the health system, I'm sure some of these things occurred. Um, so the first aspect of this that hit us was really the, um, the people who were sick with COVID themselves. Um, our employee health service um, very rapidly became uh, overwhelmed with the number of staff members. Uh, one of the things that we need to do is basically, you know, put people on isolation. And it, well. If you think back to the early days of the of the um, epidemic or the pandemic in New York, anybody who had a high risk exposure was supposed to go on quarantine for two weeks, even if they didn't have any symptoms. So we had a large number of people that were taken out of the workforce for a single exposure. 
in one of our one of our community hospitals, um, there was a patient who had been in the hospital for a couple of weeks um, and didn't seem like a COVID patient, uh, but wasn't getting better. And at some point, we tested him for COVID, and it turned out he was positive. There were over 70 people that were taken out of the workforce immediately for for two weeks because of um, for isolation uh, for quarantine. That changed um, rapidly as community spread started to occur. But it was just one one stage in the in the rollout of the pandemic and how it occurred. So employee health was overwhelmed with uh, with with people who initially were just on quarantine, but then actually with COVID, we had um, somewhere I, I think at the peak probably about fifteen hundred staff members that were out sick with COVID, um, and so you, and, and some of those were obviously community spread. They weren't the people who got got it in the hospital but they were sick uh, and so they couldn't work. So that was one challenge. Um, the next challenge was when our own people um, were, were getting sick and getting admitted to the hospital and actually not doing well. And when we had a staff member pass away, uh, we had a nurse pass away relatively early in this and it was a young person. Um, and that sent shockwaves across our health system. Um, shortly thereafter, there was an emergency medicine physician at a neighboring institution that committed suicide. Uh, and that sent shockwaves throughout the, uh, probably the country. Um, and then an EMT committed suicide and a nurse in a region just north of here committed suicide. And we started to really focus on the mental health components of this. It wasn't that we weren't thinking about it already. It just wasn't on the forefront of everything we were doing very rapidly it became part of the forefront. Um, and the challenge that we had was understanding exactly what do you need to do? What are the resources you need to have? What works? Um, and are people ready to even start confronting what their needs are? It's an extremely complicated issue. Uh, and so we ended up throwing a lot of different things at it and, and waiting to see what stuck um, to the wall and what, and what didn't. Uh, we still have uh, a plethora of of programs in place. We one of the one of the things that several of our leaders were insistent upon was that we actually have mental health providers embedded in the hospitals available for staff. The challenge with that is when staff are working at the bedside, they really don't want to leave the bedside. Number one, and they don't necessarily want to acknowledge that they need to speak to a mental health worker. So having them there wasn't necessarily effective except in a crisis situation. So at one point, we had um, a chief PA at one of our emergency departments uh, get intubated and admitted to, to the hospital. Uh, and all the PAs that worked in that emergency department were in shock um, and they needed to talk to somebody. Um, and so that worked out very, that worked very effectively. But again, you don't necessarily want to have to have a crisis to get people to recognize that they need the help. Um, and so we created uh, what are called mental health liaisons. Uh, they're mental health um, specialists that uh, are basically tied to different units. They do round periodically in the hospital, but they are the resource for that unit. The idea being that they are uh, the person that you would go to if you need any help. Um, we created hotlines. We created online materials. Um, we created um, 
talking points for leadership for when they're rounding, how to speak with staff to try to elicit if the staff are, are having difficulty. Um, you know, questions like, um, you know, how are you sleeping or what are you doing when you're not here? Um, are you alone when you're home? Uh, if so, who are you talking to? You, you, you know, probing questions to try and get a sense of uh, what's going on. Because if you just ask people, how are they doing? They'll probably say they're managing. You know, they won't say they're doing great, but they won't complain. Um, it's just not the nature of, of our workforce. And so I think this is a huge challenge for us. Uh, tomorrow, we're actually kicking off a program called Insight for Leaders. Uh, Insights for Leaders, which is going to be a uh, an every other week um, uh, live broadcast. It will be recorded, but a live um, Zoom broadcast interview style. Um, tomorrow is going to focus on mental health and well-being. Um, the first person to speak will be one of our hospital presidents who is really concerned about this and makes a point of rounding every day to try and make sure his staff is okay. Um, and then we've got multiple uh, specialists in behavioral health that are going to be speaking about their programs. Uh, and then our VP for emergency management is going to speak because he's been through um, countless deployments and um, has spent a lot of time thinking about what, what it means to be able to get this right. His contacts at the Uniform Services University for health, uh, of Health Sciences um, we've spoken with them a number of times about various elements of, uh, of a deployment. They have a center for deployment uh, psychology uh, as well of, as well as uh, for trauma psychology. And uh, we've reached out to them to talk to them about optimal staffing patterns and staffing hours, uh, as well as the resources that you might bring to bear for uh, mental health uh, after, uh, after something like this. I mean, it really, uh, this whole discussion has, has just brought up a plethora of things that normally don't come to mind necessarily um, dealing with a disaster because, as you've said, in previous disasters, they were time limited. You maybe evacuated a hospital and, and then reintegrated those patients, et cetera, but nothing has existed in our lifetimes to a situation similar to this. The volume of patients, the criticality of the patients, the the huge personnel and work needs, et cetera, of, of all healthcare personnel and the challenges it's placed. Is there anything else in, in all of this, whether it's regarding the staffing, whether it was how you actually manage that whole process? Is there anything else that you would like to say that, hey, I would like to communicate this to other places across the country so that they can learn from what we learned here in New York City. Uh, so I, uh, well, thanks for thanks for asking, Mary. I I, um, I, I want to just mention a technical point, and um, and it's very important, and it's obviously it's a state by state issue. Um, the Joint Commission provides us the latitude to grant disaster privileges, um, but that's for people who are licensed in your state. Uh, if somebody does not have a license in your state, uh, the governor has to take action and waive that requirement. And so that was something that uh, Governor Cuomo did early on that enabled us to bring in people from all over the country. So that's one thing I, I just want to make sure that you're clear on, because while I, in terms of everything I said about bringing 
people from everywhere. It it did require that that um, that waiver come in, uh, come into effect. Mm -hmm. That waiver is still in place. Uh, we are now uh, almost two months uh, past the peak. Peak being April sixth. That waiver is still in place. We still have some people uh, deployed from around the country, still working in a couple of in, in a couple of our hospitals, although we've eliminated most of them. So that's that's just one technical point. Um, the next is the reality that we are likely to have another wave of this. Nobody knows when, nobody knows how severe. Um, everybody keeps citing that the second wave of the Spanish flu in 1918 was worse than the first wave. Um, of course, we know a lot more now about um, isolation, infection control protocols, and things like that. So hopefully, uh, a second wave won't be worse. But I I fully believe that my leadership and anybody else's leadership is going to expect us to be better prepared for that second wave than we were for the first one. So mm -hmm. all the steps that we took and all the lessons that we learned, um, we're going to need to have in place for the second wave. And so that planning has to go on now. And anything that you didn't resolve, that we didn't resolve, um, that we fumbled through, we do need to, to take the time now to, to fix it, to make sure that we're ready uh, for it in the future. Another insight is um, the hero of the day, I think, um, we're, we're hospitalists. Most of these patients required um, hospital medicine expertise. A lot of them were in the ICUs, but still the majority were on medical units. Um, and I don't know that anybody would have ever thought that there would be uh, a, a disaster in which hospitalists would be our most important providers, hospitalists and respiratory therapists, and, uh, and of course, nursing. Um, the, the last piece, the last thing I would want to just reemphasize is the importance of communication and a command structure. Um, I think that our command structure was very effective. I think that we learned a lot about it along the way. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, our system did not activate frequently for emergencies because there was, wasn't a need for it, but um, it certainly rose to the occasion. And um, we worked extremely collaboratively, and I am incredibly proud of the people that I work with for the work that they did. I can just say that, you know, the rest of the country, you know, applauds all the folks around the country who who are providing this care in this pandemic crisis they they thoroughly appreciate all the people in in the tri-state area there where you are which was hit so massively but there are other areas of the country that are that are also being hit across the country whether it's the Navajo Nation other places and hopefully one of the things that that people will learn by listening to this broadcast is is anything that they can learn from you that they haven't already thought of or put in place may help their organization succeed um, you know we in medicine always want to steal best practices from other organizations so we really really want to say thank you thank you thank you to you and to your organization for allowing us to learn from you to be able to apply those insights to help other organizations throughout the country. Thank you for your time today. My pleasure and it was good to meet you.